Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes se requiere la descarga y registro. Welcome to the first Say It Ain't Contagious mini episode. I'm joined today by my colleague Lincoln Mitchell. Say hello, Dr. Mitchell. Good to be here. How's everybody doing? Functional, functional. Also joining us is David Roth, owner operator of Defector, the sports and politics commentary site. How are you today, David? I'm all right. I like when you say owner operator. It makes me sound like a small business owner. I just left out the flannel part, but that's pretty much your official biography from the site, right? Yeah, that's true. I did the uh, the part where I'm technically, I mean, I get paid like a flannel dipshit, but I am technically the owner operator. <laughs> it doesn't come with, with elaborate voting and, and command obligations. No, sadly, no. Okay. <laughs> so one of your long running bits, both there and at the predecessor site, is a video series called Let's Remember Some Guys, in which your interrogator, your interlocutor, usually Lauren Thiessen, opens a pack of old baseball cards and surprises you with who is in the pack and asks you if you remember that player. If you fail to remember that player, I guess this is not always true. They've had some mercy on you, but you are forced to eat a huge piece of gum until you can no longer fit any gum in your mouth. So did you create this format? Was it suggested to you or was it forced upon you? Well, the concept of remembering guys was something that uh, Tom Lay came up with back in the day. I think just like because Deadspin was, you know, when we were doing 20 posts a day, sometimes, you know, like somebody could be in whatever the, the version of Slack that they used then was and just be like, hey, I was just thinking about, uh, do you guys remember uh, TJ Yeldon, the running back? <laughs> and then people would be like, yeah. And be like, I think I want to write a blog about how I just remembered TJ Yeldon. And then that would, so that was the, the genesis of it. And then they did it on Facebook. I remember Samer and Tom did it like for a while back when everybody had to do Facebook Live during that uh, iteration of online media scammery. And um, the pivot to video, the infamous. Yeah, that was like, I don't remember what sort of pivot that was. Like if you could imagine just like Luke Longley pivoting ineffectually <laughs> uh, and getting a three second call. <laughs> like that's it was basically, that was like second 2.3 of that. Uh, and then when I got there, like it was just the idea of doing it on video was um, our video people, uh, Kieran and Jorge, uh, sort of came up with the, the look and like feel of it. And then the idea of like, you know, remembering stuff and the gum, I believe was like a Jorge Kieran innovation just to like gamify it slightly, but it was, uh, primarily an, an ASMR, uh, enterprise. <laughs> like the idea was that you'd hear some like kind of, um, like bluegrass, like just basically very chill music in the background while I w was sitting there being like, oh, yeah, Gary Gaetti. I loved him. And at that I worked... at the All-Star game with the batting glove and said something about Jesus. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. See, th now you're playing it. This is how this is how it works, is that you basically uh, there are there's no way to, to win or lose. Really? You just kind of I mean, you you did just win because you got to remember Gary Gaetti's evangelical batting gloves. So congrats. Related story, if I may. A few years ago, an old friend of mine from college invited me up, invited me to a New Year's Eve party. I was out in California, but it was in, it was in Sevastopol, in Sonoma. And I get up to his place, we get up there, and I see another old friend of mine from college who's been drinking a little bit. It's New Year's Eve, you know. 
And he says, hey, Lincoln, good to see you. And then he says, he brings somebody over and he says, hey, this guy knows who won every World Series. Which is, you know, true. I guess in this crowd, it's not that unusual, but in those Sonoma County. And as the night got long, got older, you know, longer, he would keep drinking and then come up to me every 45 minutes. What about 1936? <laughs> and then half an hour later, a little bit drunker. What about 1958? And it went on and on. And, he, you know, that was my New Year's Eve. Did you get the sense that he was, like, trying to fight you in some way? Oh, like, no. He was a sweet guy and a good friend. He just thought it was so funny that I could always answer the question. Yeah. I mean, I, that's definitely the um, the way that it's worked for me. I mean, it's not anything like fame or whatever. But the people that have seen the videos that I've engaged with in real life are often, like, I, when we did a live deadcast in Chicago, I remember a guy, like, kind of, like, you know, a nice, like, adult, like, high-functioning dude came up to me afterwards and was like, hey, I brought a um, brought a pack of Donruss with me. Like, do you mind, like, opening that with me? And that was, like, basically what we did. It was, like, it wasn't, like, a game or whatever. He was like, Bruce Benedict. Yeah, right? And I was like, I know, dude. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I, my, my, I, I was an avid collector of baseball cards and kind of the, you know, what Josh Wilker would call the cardboard god era. Yeah. And my brother... My late brother was not as interested in baseball cards, but he liked the gum, and I hated the gum. So it's a little bit like this this game here. I would buy the baseball cards, maybe he'd give me a little bit of money, I'd buy a bunch of baseball cards, and he would get the gum. And whenever I see that pink, flat stick of gum, I think of my brother. Oh, the gum is such a... That's been, the I think, the, the one crucial element of body horror that every successful web video series needs. Um, the Remember Some Guys thing has been provided by the fact that we're opening packs from, like, 1993, and they've just all got gum in them. One other question about the past of Let's Remember Some Guys, David, and that is that under its previous management, this series took you as far as an all-expense-paid trip to California to meet up with a guy who collected, I believe it was obscure Jewish players. Now that you're an owner-operator and the expenses, in theory, come out of your own pocket, would you send yourself to California to do a Let's Remember Some Guys remote? Man, I would send myself to California to see my friends and eat. Like, I could tell you the three particular tacos from Guisados in Los Angeles that I would eat. Um, and if we could find a way to uh, graft some guy remembering onto it, I would obviously do it. I, what I, I miss, like, you know, we did one uh, during the summer. Lauren and I got together in Tom Lay's little weird, like, Bushwick backyard, which is basically like a few squares of concrete and a broken fountain. And it was, and we did, you know, some guy remembering with masks on outdoors, social distanced, you know, the whole deal. But, you know, once we can do it again, I would love to get back to doing that. It's not the same thing over Zoom. And, you know, there is like this whole other online world of opening packs, you know, for fun and profit, you know, like contemporary packs and, you know, looking for super fractors and autographs and all that shit. And, I don't know, it's just like a really pleasant way to, the way that we did it. It's like a pleasant way to spend, a, you know, an hour with a coworker, And, uh, you know, it's spending an hour with anybody at this point uh, pleasantly seems like something that you would dream, maybe. But uh, it just feels awfully far off, too. Since this show is about baseball and politics, today we're playing Let's Remember Some Guys and Presidents, because presidents are not guys, clearly. I have before me two stacks of cards. The pres We could go in another direction. I, I'm, I'm not going to interrupt you more. <laughs> but if you wanted to say, like, when we're remembering the presidents, whether we categorize them as, as dudes, like stars, or guys, like just like interchangeable presidents, I think that that 
rubric can be applied to this. I think that's fine. We, we can do that, too. And so I have two stacks. The president's one was handmade by me, the arts and crafts wizard that I am, despite having fingers like a theme park mascot. And I have, in addition, a stack of 1989 tops cards. There are 46 cards in each stack, and we can alternate picking from each. I do not have gum for you. Should you not remember anything about a player, I guess if you have gum, you can chew it. Should you not remember anything about a president, you get to chew a piece of this faux parchment copy of the Constitution. That's... <laughs> or you can ask Dr. Mitchell to recite from memory a clause from the United Nations Convention on Human Rights. I haven't asked him, but I'm sure he has memorized it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Since we're doing this auditorily, you're on your honor as to cheating. And since Lincoln is used to grading things, we'll let him judge whether an answer is sufficient for remembering some guys. So your choice as to... I went to UC Santa Cruz. We didn't have grades then. <laughs> your choice, David, as to which stack we will begin with. Will it be a player, a guy, I should say, or a president? I feel like I've done... I mean, you know, obviously I'm, I'm eager to do more of it, but I feel like I've done less president remembering than I have guy remembering. So let's, uh, let's let me see a chief executive, Stephen. Okay, I have shuffled these extensively. And so the first president to come up, do you remember Zachary Taylor? A little bit. Zachary Taylor was a war hero? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Uh, probably, I don't know if I know the, the conflict. It was like the Mexican-American conflict? That is right. Uh, in terms of what else he did, I think he was, uh, as a general rule, a, a president without any attributes. Lincoln would probably be able to expand <laughs> upon that, but I... At the very least, I think I dodged the double bubble on that one. I think that's about as good an answer as as a uh, history as any history professor would give you. He was one of those stream of not very consequential presidents that couldn't prevent the the, the onrush of the Civil War, and also at a time where executive power in the American political system was very different. I mean, Abraham Lincoln in the uh, Civil War really changed the nature of the presidency, and you know Roosevelt, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a good answer. I give you an Ivy League A, which is to say a B. I appreciate it. So he was not the most ineffectual of the ineffectual presidents that preceded Lincoln, though, right? I'm surprised that neither of you have mentioned, I would think, the one trivia thing that everyone knows about Zachary Taylor. Oh, the Tippecanoe and Tyler? No, no, no. That's a different war hero okay. for a, a, even an even more ignoble war. No, he was the guy who died in office having eaten warm cherries and no switch that having eaten cold cherries and drunk warm milk on a hot day is that like a pop rocks and pepsi thing i think he essentially died of diarrhea just to be to be blunt about it wow. but he's been hauled up out of the grave a couple of times because people are convinced that he was actually poisoned because he was the one president in this period to flex a little bit in terms of of not giving the south its way on everything. One of the reasons that, as Lincoln said, the Civil War rushed on was because everyone just sort of palliated them uh, like they were sort of a, a cranky child. Beginning with the crafting of the Constitution. Well, yes. Also, I should say, if you look at pictures of Zachary Taylor, it's kind of neat that even though it was an era before hairspray, it was not an era before combs, and yet everyone posed for pictures as if they had just rolled out of bed. So Yeah. Wow. He looks kind of like, like, I guess if like if Lee Marvin had a worse lifestyle. <laughs> it's hard to imagine Zachary Taylor in Point Blank, but, uh, yeah, but entirely that's possible. That's true. That's stylized. Uh, it's tough to look this guy in the face and know that he died of pooping. But <laughs> it's a different time. When you gotta different. go, you gotta go, I guess. Yes. 
<laughs> All right, so shall we move to the stack of 1989 Topps cards? And do you remember Steve Jeltz? Oh, boy. Uh, Lincoln, <laughs> do you want to do this? I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe Steve Jeltz was with the Phillies. Yes. Yep. And I believe he was the third baseman and as a prospect, that they, and they decided they had a veteran third base at the time. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a right-handed hitter by the name of Mike Schmidt. And and they decided that Mike Schmidt, who for my money is still the greatest third baseman non-steroid division ever, would play would move to first so that Jelts would be able to play third. That was Rick Schu. Okay. Yes. In that case, he was an infielder with the Phillies. Yes, he was. So <laughs> Jelts, this is the way it works with me and remembering guys and remembering cards in general, is that, like, I remember... Less the player. I certainly saw Steve Jeltz play because he was on the Phillies and they played the Mets, you know, it seemed like 30 times a year uh, when I was a kid. But what I all I remembered was that, like, he was the guy with a jerry curl that wasn't Juan Samuel. Like, they had more than one wet-look infielder at that time. Jeltz was by far the inferior of the two. But I remembered from getting cards of his that he was born in Paris, which he was, uh, because that's a, a weird thing to see on the back of a baseball card. I remembered that he couldn't hit at all. Yet there was one game where he hit, it was like two homers or maybe even three homers. And that was mentioned on the back of a card. The first set that score did had these wonderful, like multi-source, like almost feature style text backs that were probably, you know, 200 words. Like they were like enough room that you could actually write a little something. And they like had a quote from him and they had a quote from Larry Boa being like, damnedest thing I ever saw. And it was to find that card in my hand in Cooperstown was like not Proustian exactly, but it was the sort of thing where I was like, oh, this is like, I'm remembering this card in a very like authentic way, much more than I'm remembering the player himself. It was June 8th, 1989. He hit two, one off of Bob Walk, one off of Bob Kipper. Those are some good pirates too. But that's, uh, yeah, so that's that's good. I, I, three in one game is a bit much. I think he probably hit like five for his entire career. But. I just want to point out that one of my uh, friends from high school who went into comedy writing would wander about the hallways doing sort of a pirate's version of Gilligan's Island around this time. And it fits really well. You can do with Milligan, Bob Kipper, too, you know, so. You would be interested in this because of your other podcast, but you can sing any Bob Dylan song to the tune of the <laughs> Don't do that to me. I mean, Emily Dickinson has long since been ruined for me by the, the Yellow Rose of Texas thing. So now. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Great. The, the moment when you were finally disabused of thinking Bob Dylan is cool. I can't believe I was here for it, just to watch it. <laughs> there goes another sideline. Uh, okay, so back to the pile of presidents. And actually, this is a good one, David, to ask your earlier question. Is he a dude or just a guy? Do you remember George W. Bush? Uh, fondly. Loved his work. Uh, he was huge. Uh, I guess early aughts was kind of his peak. I know that it's not really happening, but the the very prospect of a George W. Bush rehabilitation project, it's mostly most people getting upset about the idea of like, look, I can see liberals are like saying that he's good again. And like, I never actually see people doing that. Like, mostly I see people being like, oh, it's nice that Michelle Obama gave him a Werther's. <laughs> I know. But at the same time, like, like that wasn't really that long ago. Like I was an adult when George W. Bush was president, like, I definitely remember what it was like. Like, I don't think that there's ever going to be any rehabilitating that. I certainly hope not. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I know that that's, you know, these things change over time as we learn more and, you know, 
find new things to compare things to and so on. And yet at the same time, like, there's really only so far that I think that that's likely to go here. To me, he was probably the worst president before the last or more recent worst president that we had. He's been bumped down the list. And I'm not eager to rehabilitate him for doing the bare minimum that he could do. But at the same time, his participating in civic rituals that the outgoing Cheddar guy refused to participate in does say something for him. Again, maybe it's just replacement level, but I do appreciate who, who is, you know, negative three war versus someone who every time he comes to bat immediately closes eyes, swings the first three pitches. And when the fly balls come into the center fielder, runs and tackles the center fielder. I mean, yeah, I do think the the ritual stuff. I will say this: I I do think I think that Bush is a, a, a worse and more destructive president than Trump was. Obviously, they, you know these things change. Clock still ticking. There's plenty of time for Trump to further besoil his legacy and resume and all of that. But the ritual stuff, I don't think I realized the extent to which it mattered until it was absent. I, I really go back and forth on the ritual stuff because. You know, the and I don't want to say too much on George W. Bush because I was not only a, you know, I mean, I, I worked against him in 2000. You know, I, I mean, I volunteered in 2004, but I was actually working for the campaign a little bit in 2000. I wrote extensively about it at the time. But the ritual stuff normalized in a very unhealthy way. Actually, he was doing real damage to the institution, to the democracy, to the country. And yet the, the rituals were still there and we were supposed to. That, that made me very uncomfortable. I think he also normalized lying, though, in a way that made it easier for Trump. I mean, obviously, all presidents sort of do. The idea of doing it in a way that was sort of almost confrontational in terms of that, I guess they never really figured out who the person was. I guess they thought that it was like Cheney or whatever. They gave that anonymous quote to Ron Chernow about we're history's actors. Like what we say, you know, becomes real. And like, and you're there to like take notes. That's what your job is. For me, Bush is a good reminder. The, the Bush presidency is a reminder that it can always get worse, and that's something we should be thinking about now as we as we segue from the Trump Republican Party to the Marjorie Taylor Greene Republican Party. Yeah. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it often does. There's an optimistic thought. You better pull Kurt Schilling out of this pack next time. <laughs> He raids your fridge. Brada, brada. Borrows your car without asking. Scratches? What scratches? He's your brother-in-law. I'll pay you back. He takes what's yours, and there's nothing you can do. But when identity thieves want to take what's yours, you can do something. LifeLock by Norton monitors your info and alerts you to potential threats. If you become a victim, they can help fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com using promo code LifeLock. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. Actually, I have pulled a guy that I know you will remember because although he is not a Met on this card, he did have an extensive Mets phase. He is a brewer on this card. He is Charlie O'Brien. A Mets phase. 
<laughs> He's just going through some stuff. He'll be it's fine. something you get over. Charlie O'Brien, uh, another guy. Well, we're, I feel like I've mentioned people's hair a lot. Although, again, if we're going by cards, if he was with the Brewers here, my guess is that that was a luscious perm coming out the back of the helmet. Is that right? Yes. He has pleasantly curly hair. Yes. It was a good look at the time, a very popular. I think, like, just a, a backup catcher who didn't hit of the kind that they used to make. Like, I feel like now all of those guys are shaped different. They're shaped like RBI baseball characters. Like, they're just completely rectangular, like, uh, you know, Henry Blanco body type dudes. Like, Charlie O'Brien, I, I just remember being kind of, like, a normal guy with kind of, like, dandified hair. But who also probably played, like, 15 seasons in the way that backup catchers used to be able to do. He was yet another guy who really couldn't hit at all. Like, all his value was defensive. And what I remember most frequently watching a lot of Mets games in that period when Tim McCarver was still on the broadcast, you know, Tim was still, I guess, in his peak period where you could defensively say that McCarver was a good broadcaster, but he tended to have his hobby horses and not let them go. And one of them, and this is long before Tony La Russa made this like a real thing that people did, is that if any pitcher who could hit at all was in the game. Dwight Gooden, say, who did pop the odd home run. Charlie O'Brien has to bat ninth. He's that bad. Like, the pitcher has to bat eighth. And what that was at the time was Ugh. McCarver kind of speaking truth to power in the same way that he would try to, quote, spoil no hitters. He liked to feel that he was being radical. He wasn't. He was just being annoying. But that that was the that period. It's a thin line, though, isn't it? Between it radical is. and annoying. When I was taking my comprehensive yes. exams in, in political science so, 150 years ago, you know, you have to read this stack yeah. of books and articles and be ready to just speak, know every single book. And I went through this. I thought I was doing really well. There was a book that came up and one of the professors said, well, what, what about so-and-so's book? But I remember it was an urban politics book about Maynard Jackson in Atlanta. And I said, oh, Clarence Stone. That was the, the scholar's name. And I said, Clarence Stone's book is about Atlanta. And that's all I could remember. And she said, that's all you got? And I said, that's all I got. <laughs> and fortunately, I, I did very well in the exam. But, and so Charlie O'Brien was a catcher. Yes, that's good. And, and he actually really did play for parts of 15 seasons. I looked it up. Uh, he kept the perm for longer than you'd think. He did hit 13 homers one year. All you need to know about him is that he's a catcher. Like, there's not, I think, any other thing where it's like, oh, the Charlie O'Brien game. I was there for that one. Don Sutton, when he passed away, I went back and read some old interviews of him, and uh, and the perm was not a natural thing. It was an affectation. He said, I, I go to the to the hairstylist, and I sit under the dryer and read Cosmo. Uh, he was very funny about it, but okay, that was the mid-'70s. People did that kind of thing yeah. then, but he kind of stuck with that for yep. the rest of his life. You have to admire the commitment. My brother-in-law yep. is a Dodgers fan. He's my age exactly almost. So when Don Sutton died, I text him. I said, you know, so sorry to hear this. You know, we got to kind of texting back and forth about John Sutton. And he said, I could never understand why the first half of his career didn't have a perm because he's been a Dodger fan for a long time. And then the second half he did. He just liked the look. I, I want to believe that there was some sort of way that like the activator that they used somehow conferred secret spin on the ball. Like he was able to use that as <laughs> the wet look. It's always back to the wet look with you, dude. Yeah. The way that like uh, Clay Buchholz used to just like dump water on his head so that he'd have something wet to put on the baseball and be like, what? I just li I look this way. All right, so back to the pile of presidents who may or may not be guys. Do you recall, I have to admit I'd have a hard time with this one myself beyond some superficial stuff, Benjamin Harrison. Uh, why don't you field this one, Lincoln? 
Gosh, you know, I will say this. I'm a political scientist, not a historian. And what that means is if it happened before FDR, we don't have to know about it. Yep. <laughs> so what I remember about Benjamin Harrison is that he is not the one that died after getting, like, croup at his own inaugural parade. That was his grandpa. That was, yeah, William Henry. But, man, Benjamin Harrison is a true guy. I mean, he's basically the Charlie <laughs> O'Brien. He had a beard. Uh, he he was the the filling in a Grover Cleveland sandwich. Oh, he was the the so he defeated Grover Cleveland and then lost to Grover Cleveland. He didn't really defeat Grover Cleveland, except in the sense that Trump defeated Hillary. This was one of the few times in history prior to recently that the Electoral College and the popular vote delivered a split verdict. Oh wow! Well, that's a I mean that's more memorable than anything he did in office. I'm sure. He was a Civil War general before that. I don't know. I don't I have not the foggiest clue what he did in office. I'm sure that it was a lot of stuff about tariffs and civil service reform. And that's just a guess. But in that period of time, that seems like a, a fair thing as the United States pinwheeled between incredibly deep punishing depressions and worrying say, like, about the the rotation in office and the spoil like, system. Apply lubricant to the spoil system as directed. And then, yeah, and then die from eating cherries. Or it was also a period, and it was dominated by the Republican Party following the Civil War, really, until Wilson. Back to the ballplayers then, and we draw out another guy I'm sure you'll remember. This is probably the most prominent player we've pulled so far, right? Von Hayes. A lot of Phillies. So Von Hayes, I yeah. remember being good and kind of preppy looking, like kind of had like a John Hughes villain vibe. As a Mets fan, I very much did not like him. But I think Phillies fans didn't like him either. They didn't. What was the reasoning for that? He was called Mr. Five for One because he had come up oh, with yeah. Cleveland and they dealt Julio Franco, George Vukovic, Jerry Willard, and a couple of other guys who I'm not going to place right now for him. And he was good but not godlike. And that was enough to piss Phillies fans off. He was a really highly touted prospect at the time. I mean, I remember in the early 80s, you heard about Von Hayes in a time when you didn't hear a lot about prospects. It was different then. And I think that was very disappointing for the Phillies fans. He was just kind of, a, you know, a solid player for a while. Yeah, made one all-star team. He was really good. At, I mean, he was good at all the things that I think he would be valued much more highly just to look at his stats now. The best year that he had, 1989, he had 259, 376, 461 splits, 101 walks and 103 strikeouts. I mean, like, that's he stole 28 bases, hit 26 homers. Like, that's a, a pretty excellent season. Like, that's that then he was, you know, whatever, parts of three years away from being retired by then. I mean, in 1983, when they won the World Series his first year, he was, I think, you know, uh, not, a, not an impact player on that team. And then the Phillies weren't good after that. And somehow... When you, when your career when you ascend as your team declines, the Phillies from you know seventy six to eighty three were in and around the playoffs always, and then they weren't for a while. And from you know roughly eighty six to certainly through nineteen ninety or so, he was a very good player. And that wasn't, and that I don't think I think that's the kind of thing that actually would would turn Phillies fans against him because the team wasn't doing well, which means he wasn't doing well enough. He also I think another thing that probably hurt him is that he was the very rare major leaguer at that time who did not have a mustache. Yeah, that's true. He was very and, and he almost had a little bit of a baby face, so that would Yeah, a, a clean-shaven guy in a hirsute world. He was kind of a funny-looking guy in general in that he was storky. He was yeah, like 6'5 six, six, five, five, but yeah. and not very heavy, so he uh, he looked like the slender man eventually. I I think is is what he looked like. That's the type of baseball player that they don't really make as many of anymore. All right, one more president before we run out of time. All right. 
Here's a heavy hitter. Lyndon Baines Johnson. Do you remember Lyndon Baines Johnson? I got all kinds of feelings about Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, I have not read the the Robert Caro books. Yeah, um, I, you know, I admire them for their their heft and and girth. And I have friends who've read them and, and really love Caro. I have not. Uh, it hasn't really ever worked for me. But I always found him to be um, one of the most kind of, you know, like in the way that I, I resist the whole like great man thing about like everybody has to be interesting because they were president. Uh, but Linda Johnson seems to me authentically interesting and authentically tragic in a bunch of ways. But I, I don't know. I've, I think I've, of all the presidents that I have read books about, I think that he's probably the one that I have read the most books about and with the greatest interest, not even for when I was in school studying history, but I just like, he seemed like a, a crazy person. Um, but uh, one who had like a, a sort of a moral compass that I, uh, I don't understand, but respect. I have two LBJ stories here. One is, and this really kind of captures who he was, as he left, I'm going to clean up the language because it's LBJ. It's, yeah, that's the, the one thing we should mention about LBJ is that any story that can be told about him, the language must be cleaned up. As he left office, he turned to Clark Clifford, who was one of his advisors, and said, there are two things that cost us, you know, the presidency. Because as you know, he dropped out of the race and decided not to seek re-election in spring of 1968. And he said, one was our support for civil rights. He didn't use that language, but we're going to use that here. That cost us 15 points in the polls. And the other was the war in Vietnam. That cost us 10 points in the polls. And if I could do it over, I would do them both again. And that really tells you a little bit about who Johnson was and that he saw the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War as kind of moral equivalencies, and they were not. But yeah. uh, the other story I would say is this. In 1964, around probably the mid-90s, I got a postcard from my father. Now, my father lived in, like near Woodstock or Hongson, that part of New York State. And, and my father had a sense of humor and politics not radically different than mine. And it was a postcard from a from one of Barry, from Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign for president against Johnson that my father had found in like a library or something like that in a sale you know for like a quarter and he bought it and he wrote on the back it's a good guy it's a good thing this guy never got elected otherwise we might have had a big war in Vietnam and underlining because we had the big war in Vietnam anyway yeah, but, but right. so so um but but the other thing is that Johnson was probably along with Roosevelt and Jefferson the th one of the three most important Democratic presidents that that we've had in, in in American history and his support for civil rights it was under Johnson that African Americans really wholesale abandoned the Republican Party because of his support in pushing through the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and that is had an enormous impact on our politics you know up to today I think one of the one of the aspects of that tragedy that David alluded to and that you alluded to in his kind of stubbornness about recognizing the mistake that was Vietnam is that I know one of his motives was that he had been around for Harry Truman getting tarred with the we lost China or he lost China thing that the the Republicans attacked him with, not that he necessarily did, but that stuck and, and caused a lot of damage and, and helped create the Red Scare. I find this constantly amusing is the wrong word now that we've had a president who arguably was paid off for working for Russia in some sense. I hope that doesn't mark me as a, a conspiracy theorist. His uh, his allegiance to Putin just is too hard to believe 
otherwise, given that he has no allegiance to anyone for any reason other than that they're paying him. He saw that as a political trap and didn't play into it by committing to the war, but played into it in another sense by then mishandling the war. Yeah, I mean, Johnson was a creature of the Cold War, and he was a Cold Warrior. And in his mind, you know, it's so the, – the thing about like political ideologies like that is once you – if you believe that the Soviet Union is out to dominate the world and destroy the United States and that there's a real chance of that happening, which there wasn't, at least in the short term, then you can rationalize anything else. And the Cold War was so much about that and that's what – you know, it wasn't that, that the argument itself didn't make sense for being in Vietnam, which it didn't. It was that – the assumptions on which the arguments were based didn't make sense. Right. And there's something – there's a, a real – I mean you don't want to give Johnson credit for stuff, you know, facts, not in evidence. But I think in, in both of those, the idea that, of believing that both of those things were right, like sincerely believing it enough that he risked his presidency, you know, wrecked his presidency, is like – I don't know. It's sort of – there's something very American about it in – the good and the bad ways that such a, a term could be used. I mean, in terms of like that sincerely held belief that in one instance, they're, you know, that like the better ideals of the country and so on are like so important that they're worth risking everything for, you know, domestically. And then also to believe that like, yeah, your democracy abroad is like what you're doing when you drop napalm on a country the other you know on the other side of the world it's like it's funny how uh idealism can take such different shapes you know when i used to teach um i used to teach a course on uh democracy promotion u.s democracy promotion policy and one thing i would say is that americans really believe I mean, deeply believe that the whole world speaks english if you just speak slowly and quietly and loudly enough and and, and of course I'm, I'm making that as a metaphor but they they do kind of believe that underneath all those unusual cultures and languages that we don't understand, they're just Americans. And if you just speak English loudly enough, they'll get it. And I think Johnson really believed that. And yeah. and that was not the case in Vietnam. But the other thing is that when you hear people constantly ask probably the single stupidest question in politics, which is why do so many lower-income white people vote against their interests? And, and, and there's a stupid question for a lot of reasons. But the short answer is because Johnson thought civil rights was important. That is why. Yes. And, yeah. and, you know, we should recognize that. Not to mention, you know, he, I mean, the, what were then considered socialist programs for, by the Republicans, but like Medicare and Medicaid. This is an enormously influential president who made an enormously massive mistake and and really went about in a dishonest, sleazy, lying way in, in Vietnam that that destroyed his legacy and his chance of getting reelected. Re There's a line in Full Metal Jacket, which is one of my favorite Vietnam movies, if that's a thing, having a favorite Vietnam movie. And I'm going to paraphrase it because there's a slur in it. But there's a, a scene in which a, a general says to Matthew Modine that inside every Vietnamese person is an American just trying to break out. And it really captures the misconception that you were just talking about. Lincoln. And then the other thing I would say uh, along the lines of people voting against their best interests, I really recommend Rick Perlstein's book, Nixon Land. Oh, I'm which, reading Reagan Land right now. That's good. Yeah, I haven't started it yet. I've read the the uh, the intervening volume, but that book goes, it, it takes as its 
its jumping off point, the the idea that in 1964, Johnson won one of the biggest landslide victories in American history, if not the biggest to that point. It seemed like the Republican Party and the conservative movement had been stomped out of existence. But within eight years, Richard Nixon had won the greatest landslide in American history to that point. And what is the fulcrum on which that realignment happens? It's both the civil rights movement and then the law and order campaign by the right in the aftermath of things like the Watts riots in 1965. Another way to say that is that gold, Goldwater in 64 carried the Deep South. He carried four Deep South states on essentially white racist reaction to Johnson's support for civil rights. And in 1960, by 1972, that backlash had moved north. And that, and that was the backbone of, of Nixon's huge victory. And that's why, you know, this kind of fetishization of the white working class with regards to why did they vote for Trump in such large numbers is absurd, not because it's not an important question, but because it's not a new phenomenon, right? The, the, the difference that the white working class, depending, you know, if you define it by education or income, how they voted for Johnson, excuse me, for, for Nixon in 72, or Reagan in 80 or 84, or Trump, you know, is essentially within the margin of error. This happened in that window between that 64 and that 72 race, and it was consolidated after that. The uh, Pearlstein book on uh, Goldwater is also good. The one that came before uh, Nixon land. And I'm forgetting what it's called now. And you have to get through all three volumes of Robert Caro's uh, Johnson book. I, yeah, I mean, I'm youngish. I got a shot. <laughs> He's not, and he still has to finish what I assume is going to be the final volume. So let's do one last baseball card before I figure out how to edit this down to like 45 minutes. It's supposed to be a mini episode. And our choice is Mike Henneman. Do we remember Mike Henneman? Yeah. Tigers closer. Not, I don't remember whether he was good or not. He was on some Tigers teams that I think were not really that good. He was kind of in that that period where some of them were good and then immediately they were really, really bad. But he was better enough than Juan Berenguer to be the closer for the team, and that's something. <laughs> well, he might have actually taken over not for Berenguer. I think Berenguer started there, but for Willie Hernandez. Oh, wow. Cy Young winner, MVP winner, yes. Willie Hernandez. That would make sense, I guess, like roughly in that sort of time. Was he better than I remember? I just remember there were a lot of closers at that time that were kind of like severe-looking white men that I knew were like <laughs> the guys that got saves. But that was basically all I knew about them. Didn't they win the division in 87? Yes. yes. They lost to the Twins in the ALCS. Yes, and he had a really good rookie year that year. He went 11-3 and three yeah. out of the Yeah, team. and I wonder if he was the really the, what, you know, the closer on that team. I don't think it looks like they didn't have one. Well, I think I was going to say that I think what's interesting about him is in part actually something that's interesting about Sparky Anderson. And this is almost a political thing, too. And it's the tendency of people to start out as liberal and end up as conservative. So when Sparky Anderson was managing the Reds, he was Captain Hook because he went to the bullpen every once in a while. But by the time his career ended, his bullpen management was actually kind of old fashioned and conservative. So if you look at Henneman's stats, they don't look like closer stats. They look a little bit more like fireman yeah, stats. That's the, he had a bunch of seasons where he had 10 wins or 11 wins, and that definitely fits with that. Right. So two interesting players, if I can, uh, tangentially, on that '87 Tigers team. One of them is my nomination for the Zelig of baseball is Doyle Alexander. Yes. But another nominee could be Frank Tanana, and they were both on that team. And then one of my favorite, favorite players, not least because he claimed to have seen a UFO, Daryl Evans, at age 40, hit 34 home runs. <laughs> like, what, what, why 
did the Giants let him go as a free agent to bring in Al Oliver? At age 40, for the Tigers playing first base. Now, the Giants by this time had Will Clark at first, but still, 34 home runs and a 379 on base percentage. 87 was a crazy year for offense, right? I'm looking at this now, and, like, everybody on that team had double-digit home runs, including, like, Tom Brookins. You know, just, like, guys that were, you know, like, their whole role on the team is to, like, yeah, Matt Noakes had 30 homers as a rookie. I think in that period, too, the year before, in fact, the Tigers, and this was unusual at the time, had everyone on the infield, including the catcher, hit 20 home oh, runs. Wow. So Lance Parrish, Evans at first, Lou Whitaker at second, Alan Trammell at short, and Darnell Coles, the immortal, at third base— all hit over 20 home runs or 20 or more home runs. And today that's, you know, everyone hits 20 home runs. So it's not particularly shocking, but back then it was a big deal. I was going to ask about the circumstances under which Daryl Evans saw UFO, but you should save that for a future episode. <laughs> really great player could arguably be in the hall of fame because he, he was a, but just handy reminder, Bernard Gilkey saw a UFO in a movie. Daryl Evans saw one in real life. That is the people get confused about that. <laughs> they do. Daryl Evans is so underrated that when people think of underrated guys named Evans who should be in the Hall of Fame, they always go to Dwight to play the ball. Magic. <laughs> so what have we learned about presidents and ballplayers of 1989? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the millions, we, we spilled even more ink than, than, than before discussing the legacy of John, Lyndon Johnson, something which is not exactly new. Um, I'm looking forward to Robert Caro's book on Daryl Evans. I haven't been paying the closest attention. He's got to look at every fucking box score. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's a good note to end on, except to say that if you enjoy Sadie and Contagious, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention. We could use some of that. And David, thank you for your attention during this inaugural mini episode of Say It Ain't Contagious. Of course. It was great to talk to you both. The collection was insane. Like the guy had, he had a card that was not really a card. It was a sticker set for the Venezuelan Winter League. Did pitch in the majors, but never got a proper card. First of all, the Jewish pitcher in Venezuela, that was a Mossad agent, and that was his cover, so that he could get close to Mengele without tipping him off, that he was keeping tabs on. Deleted subplot from Spielberg's Munich. They're like, you spent too much money on this. It doesn't add anything. might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. <laughs> Llenos McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <laughs> El, la mejor manera de conocer a alguien deal de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNuggets de 10 piezas y una quarter pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar, producto individual a precio regular.